scripture reading tonight will come from Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. And it reads, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and at Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. You may be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you once again this evening, and I'm very grateful for your presence tonight, and I'm thankful for the fine singing that we've had. Thank you, Stan, and for the prayers and for the scripture reading. Thank you, Matthew, for reading the scripture for us out of Acts chapter 11 tonight. Very happy to have each one with us. We have a very fine audience this evening. We're very grateful. Uh, For those of you who need one, an outline is prepared and would like to have one, just raise your hand and one of these deacons will get to you and they'll uh, give you an outline and you can follow along and have more of a permanent record of the discussion which we will engage in tonight. As you know, we're involved in a Sunday night seminars. In our seminars, we try to drill down just a little more deeply into the message and to the text and the topic at hand. And the topic that we've chosen for this seminar is the churches of the New Testament. And I'm looking at different ones and trying to discuss uh, different matters about them and learn as much as I can and then apply that matter to myself personally so that I can be more like them in the way that they emulated Christ and avoid the things that they did for uh, uh, their lack of faith in Christ and in the Word of God. And tonight we look at uh, the church at Antioch, um, a great city of uh, the East. It was, there are five Antioch churches, I should say, five cities named Antioch in the ancient world. Let's see if I can get my history straight. There were five of them. They are named after the king, the Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes. And there are two of these cities that are mentioned in the New Testament. The one we studied tonight is in Syria. Another one, Paul would visit, Antioch of Pisidia. And that's quite a story right there from the book of Acts. But I'll say that reserve our discussion for the church that is established at the place called Antioch of Syria, which is north of Jerusalem in uh, Judea. It was called the Queen of the East. In fact, the, church, the city of Antioch uh, is one of the three great cities of the Roman Empire of the ancient times. In fact, I would guess the main city, major city of the Roman Empire would be the city of Rome. And then next to that would be Alexandria, Egypt, but next to that would be Antioch of Syria. And so it was a great city, the city Antioch on the Orontes River. The Orontes was a very important river, is a very important river in Palestine and in Asia. 
And uh, there in turn, we see that this is one of the great cities that was located there. It had a great deal of imports and exports. It had a lot of commerce and was well located for the preaching and the teaching of the gospel that we see. But if you spend time reading and studying about the ancient cities, as I do from time to time, you see that it was a very wicked city. It was a city in the southern portion. Historians talk about the southern portion of the city and how wicked and decadent the people were in that portion of the city. And so it was very cosmopolitan in the sense that it had Romans and Greeks and Syrians and Jews that were living in that city. So we have a cosmopolitan type of city, and I guess I could say that it's probably a lot like one of our modern cities today. Had a lot of different races that lived there. Uh, It had a lot of people who were coming and going in and out of the city from different parts of the empire. It was a city that was a focal point, and a lot of people came to it, one of the major cities of the empire. Probably at the time that we're looking at, it's probably 100,000 people in population, probably like the city of Tyler, I suppose. I suppose Tyler has about that many people, 100,000. I wouldn't be certain about that. You all probably know much more about that than I do. And one of the interesting aspects about this place is the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. How about that? Acts chapter 11, verse 26. That's the first time the word Christian is used in the New Testament. You might want to mark that passage in your Bible, Acts 11 and 26. These are followers of Christ, Christians, those who belong to Christ, and they were known by that fine name, that great name. And those who are obedient to the gospel of Christ are known by that name even today, the name Christian. And I'm very happy simply to be a New Testament Christian and nothing more and nothing less. One of the things that I'd like to talk a little bit about, and that is the beginning of the church, the congregation there, and I think it's significant because as you read Acts chapter 11, it talks about persecution. And Luke is such a fine historian, being led by the Holy Spirit, but yet he has such a fine flair for the historical details and tying all these matters together. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Uh, The persecution. He pulls a thread and kind of ties that together, which was let go back in chapter 8. Let's go to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And there is the stoning of Stephen. And what a story that is in chapter 7. But by the time you get to chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul, the stoning of Stephen, thought, now this is appropriate to stone this man. And there arose on that day a great persecution. There was a persecution because that gave them the impetus to persecute the church. Well, they saw the stoning of Stephen, and that sort of rallied them and gave them the incentive, the Jewish people, and now they're persecuting the church. And they think, well, what more can we persecute, and who can we find to persecute? Great persecution, it says, against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so the all there refers to the disciples and the members of the body of Christ were scattered throughout the region. But evidently the apostles stayed in the city of Jerusalem. Now that thread is picked up in our chapter 11. Because in chapter 10 and 11 he talks about the conversion of the household of Cornelius. And now the door of faith is open to the Gentile world like never before. And the primary focus of the gospel and the primary focus of the book of Acts has been a discussion about preaching the gospel to the Jews. But now the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. 
And we see this matter coming up, and he picks up that thread that he started in chapter 8. And he renews that point in chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Perhaps this is providential. Perhaps God is using this, though sad that the church is being persecuted and pressured like it is, perhaps God's using this as an opportunity to spread the gospel. And the gospel now, because Cornelius and his household have obeyed the word of God, is going out into regions beyond this, and they're going beyond Jerusalem and Samaria, and now going on into the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And they go to a city named Antioch, that great city on the Orontes River, and the church, the Word of God, established there at that place. We're going to study tonight a little bit about that establishment. We're going to study a little bit tonight about why that church grew so well and what they did with the opportunities that God gave them. And I also want to study tonight about apostasy. Because after a few decades, and it didn't take long, the church at Antioch experiences apostasy. And you and I are familiar with that because we've seen that happen before. Congregations who started out with great enthusiasm and zeal, but end up in years to come, falling away, drifting away from the Word of God. That's more or less what we want to learn and what we want to study about tonight. One of the first things that we see when we are thinking about the church at Antioch, of course, is this persecution and the great growth that they faced. Even though they faced persecution, Christians continued to make Christians. And that's always been an amazing thing for me. You would think, well, that would shut the church down. That's what the enemies of the church thought. If we persecute them, they'll go away. If we persecute them, then that'll be the end of it. And we'll never hear more about this Jesus of Nazareth again. But Christians continued to make Christians, even though they were persecuted. And when they were scattered to other regions, they carried their faith with them, and they in turn made other Christians along the way. And the church continued to grow, even in the face of great persecution. And the question is why? Is there something in this text that will tell us as to why the church at Antioch grew so well and became such a a prominent congregation of the body of Christ? I think a close look at the text will tell us, first of all, their love for the preaching and their faith in the power of the Word of God has to be right at the heart of why they grew so well. Let's study that together for the present. I'm in Acts chapter 11, and I'm looking at certain phrases that uh, come up. For example, in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And here's the phrase, Speaking the word to no one except the Jews. They believed in preaching and teaching. Now I'm in. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. This phrase of preaching and teaching is coming up more and more as I look at the nature and the character of the church at Antioch. It's very clear in the very beginning. This church grew because this church believed in the power of the Word of God and telling other people about the importance of the Word of God. I'm in verse 23 now. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he did what? Exhorted them all 
to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. They're teaching, they're preaching, they're exhorting, they're encouraging one another to be faithful to God and faithful to the Word of God. Let's go on down to verse 26, a verse I mentioned already. And when he had found him, that is Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Do you know the key to their great success as far as a congregation and why that congregation grew so well? is because of their teaching. And I have, an op- I have an idea here as I read through this text and I read it as carefully as I possibly can looking at every word and every phrase and how it's put together as much as I possibly can do it, and that is they look for every opportunity to do the teaching, every opportunity to do the preaching. And this preaching and this teaching, they would capitalize on this. They in turn grew as a congregation of God's people. Now that's not only true of Antioch. I think that's true of the early Christians. They believed in the power of preaching and teaching. The Word of God. Turn with me to a couple of verses, and I'll try to illustrate what's going on in uh, the church at Antioch by looking at other passages of Scripture in the book of Acts. You know, the first one that comes to my mind is Acts chapter 2 and 41. Some 3,000 obeyed the gospel of Christ. Some 3,000 on that day of Pentecost became New Testament Christians. But then I'll turn over to Acts chapter 4, and I notice in verse 4, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now that's Acts 4 and 4. Now notice how the church is growing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5 and about uh, 14, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Notice multitudes are now being added to the church. I don't know how many is in a multitude. I don't know how many that would be. It's just a general term. But it is telling us that the early church believed in the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And it's seeing phenomenal success. Notice in chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, the point of emphasis for the present is the fact that they were growing in their number. Notice on down in verse 7 of the passage. And the word of God continued to increase. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, the Bible got bigger when it said the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples, what? Multiplied greatly uh, in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, just in a casual way. I think we not only see that happening at Antioch, we see that happening in the New Testament church. How they believed in the Word of God. And they believed in the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God with every opportunity that they had. And it showed great results. Well, I want to go back now. And let me bear with me just a little bit and give me, be patient with me as I try to examine some of these passages as best as I possibly can. I went through these verses rather quickly. For example, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, I just said, well, 3,000 obeyed the gospel. But I didn't give any of the context. Let's go back and very briefly look at the context of each situation in which they grew and what context can be found with regard to the cause of the great growth why in acts chapter 2 and 41 so they who received his word 
were baptized. The context of the 3,000 was the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Notice in um, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, what's the context? I made mention of verse 4 there, how that some 5,000 men had obeyed the gospel. But what's the context of that? Greatly annoyed, verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, they were annoyed because these people were doing so much preaching and doing so much teaching. And then in the next verse, we have verse 4, some 5,000 men obeyed the gospel. Well, I read for you Acts chapter 5 and also read verse 14 in that chapter about the multitudes were added. But what's the context? The context would go back to Acts chapter 4 and 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. That's the context of the passage found in Acts 5 and verse 14. Well, then we went to Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. And we saw in Acts chapter 6 that word multiplied, how that they, the, they were increasing in number. But what is the context of that passage? It's found for us in chapter 5 and verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. The context in every situation is a context whereby great gospel preaching and teaching is being done. And even in chapter 6, verse 7, a passage I just briefly read, the Word of God continued to increase. What's increasing there? But their efforts to do the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And with each... We find where there is Bible-based, faithful, gospel preaching and teaching being done with every opportunity that is afforded, there is great growth. One of the keys would have to be that the church at Antioch believed in the Word of God, the church at Antioch preached the Word of God, the church at Antioch was teaching the Word of God, and people heard that message of a suffering Savior who died and was raised from the dead and was the propitiation for their sins. And they responded to it. And it's the amazing thing, isn't it? Because Antioch was made of Romans and Syrians and Jews and Greeks, and you'd ask, How would these people respond to that kind of preaching? How would these Greeks respond to that? How would these Jews respond to that? And the answer to that is many of them would set aside their Jewish ways and become New Testament Christians. And some of those Greeks would set their paganism and polytheism aside and become children of God. And you say, well, that was a different day from our day and time. Yes, I suppose it was. It was a different day. But yet we still face the same challenges that people faced back then. And the people's need has not changed. It is still the same. I think what we need in our day is to preach the gospel like they did it, with boldness. And to be plain about it. And to preach the needed message. And to preach the message with depth and understanding as best as we possibly can. 
Sometimes we fail in that regard. We'll preach a faithful gospel sermon, let's say. 98% of the congregation is already members of the church, and we're preaching a first principles sermon about hearing, believing, repenting, and being baptized. And I'm never opposed to that. You can never overemphasize that important matter. But is that really the needed message of the time? It could be that Christian living is the needed message, and we need to be addressing ourselves to the matter of sin and overcoming the temptations that we as Christians face. And uh, maybe we should have greater depth in our preaching. It could uh, well be that our preaching needs to be deeper and more sincere and, and filled with more understanding as much as we possibly can. So many times um, it's sort of a sermonette kind of delivery that is given in a very brief way and then we're gone. But yet the depth and the instruction that these people were receiving, I believe, may be an example for us today that we need to emulate. I'll tell you this. When I read articles that were written during the Restoration Movement in the 1800s and compare those articles with what is being written today, I begin to wonder, where's the depth of understanding? Where's the depth of serious Bible study in our preaching and teaching today? One of the great keys to their success in growing as a congregation was their love for the Word of God and for their desire to see and hear the Word of God preached and taught in its simplicity. I want to spend a moment talking about benevolence because I believe the church at Antioch was a benevolent congregation. Tender-hearted. If you'll notice in our study tonight, Acts chapter 11, I'm going to go to about verse 27. For there you see a discussion about a famine that's coming upon the land. And from the wording of the text, it's a famine, not just a local famine, but seemed like empire-wide is the famine. And historically, we can go to some of the historians, which I'll not make mention of tonight, but yet they tell us that during the days of Claudius Caesar, there was terrible famine and that there were people who actually starved to death because of the famine. Well, Agabus is a prophet, and God by the Spirit is telling him that there's going to be a famine over all the world. And I think what he's talking about there is the empire of the day. And it took place in the days of Claudius, he he says. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It's the first time in the book of Acts that this is mentioned about elders of a congregation receiving funds such as this. Then Acts chapter 11, we learn about the qualification of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But we see here by Acts chapter 11 that they receive these funds and it gives us the idea that the church and the elders of the church of Jerusalem served as a distribution point for those who had need of these particular matters. You see, the church at Antioch is leading the way, and they are supporting and being supportive of those who are in need. I don't see them quibbling over the method by which it should be done. I see them gathering the funds as they had the ability to do so. And Paul would talk about that particular matter, our ability to give in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And they sacrificially gave of themselves because there were brethren who were in need in that regard. Jesus talked about that. You remember that story about a good Samaritan? Remember what happened there? 
that that man was left for dead, beaten and robbed and left for dead. Why, a priest, he came along. What did he do? Passed by on the other side. He looked over and he saw that man laying there. But he didn't have a compassionate heart. He didn't have a tender heart. He just passed on by on the other side. And then Jesus said there was a Levite that came by. And he looked at that man being left over there for dead, beaten and robbed. And yet he just passed on by on the other side. You see, God blesses those. God is generous to those who see to the needs of others when they genuinely are in need. But then Jesus said there was a Samaritan. And he took that man and was kind to him. He had a benevolent heart. In Matthew chapter 24, You have a statement there I think we ought to spend just a brief moment with, and it'll have to be brief because of what I want to do tonight in our seminar. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the end of time, and he talks about two types of people there. And he says about uh, 25 and 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I believe one day God's going to divide humanity in half, and one half are going to be the people who had a tender heart toward those who are in need. And then there'll be the other half who just passed by on the other side and wasn't concerned. I think one of the things I see as far as their success as a great church, growing like it did, because they had a tender heart, And they heard by way of the Spirit, there's going to be a great famine in the days of Claudius Caesar, and it's going to be a terrible time. And they did what they could, giving of their means to meet the need of the famine that uh, would ravage others in other areas, such as in Jerusalem. I love to talk about that, but I'd also like to talk about this fact. I think it may be one that's missed in our discussion about the book about the church at Antioch. And I for sure do not want to miss this important point. And you see something of, um, of the um, success that they're having in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, Acts eleven twenty one, And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, I don't want to forget that fact, that the hand of the Lord was with them. God was on their side. They were a great success because God blessed them. They were a great success, not because they did it all themselves, but because God was on their side. The hand of the Lord was with them, and the hand of the Lord was blessing them, a way of saying that God was with them. Paul would say in Romans 8 and 31, If God God be for us, who can be against us? In Acts chapter 14 and 27, Barnabas and Paul come back to the city of Antioch after the conclusion of the first missionary journey. And the text tells us that they assembled all the congregation there, Acts chapter 14. Verse 27 says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul is saying, look what God has done. We were successful in this missionary journey. We went to these foreign cities. We preached to Gentile people. Many of them obeyed the gospel and congregations have been established. Look what God did. They were great. They did a great work because God was on their side. The hand of the Lord was with them, working with them. 
And he's the one that deserves the credit. And it deserves all the glory. It's always been that way, hadn't it? God blesses of his faithful people. When you turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and I was thinking about this. Nehemiah chapter 2, old Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem came along and uh, they wanted to stop the work. But old Nehemiah said, no, we're not going to stop. You have no part in this particular work. And they ridiculed the work the Hebrews were trying to do after being released from captivity. And Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 2 and 20, then I replied to them. He replied to Sanballat, Tobiah, and uh, Geshem. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. God's going to prosper us. We're going to work, and we're going to do his will, and God is going to give us the increase. It is God who It was the Bible writer in Psalm 127 who made the point that the builder, unless he builds... Unless God builds the house, the builder builds in vain. I'd like to turn to that verse and read it verbatim for you. Psalm 127 and 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Then he goes into this discussion about the farmer and how he rises up early and God gives the increase to the farmer. Well, what's the point? The point is... God blesses the work of faithful brethren. And when that work is growing and that work is successful like the church at Antioch was, God deserves the glory. Now that's the point that Paul was making when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. Here's a man who waters. Here's a man who plants. God gives the increase. He's the one that deserves the praise and the glory for whatever we do in this life and whatever success we may experience in his kingdom. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What was he saying? We're working with him. Isn't that a great thing that we work together with God? Let God use us. The church at Antioch was a great church and churches today can be great churches. When God's on their side and they're doing the will of God, doing it the way God wants it done, with great faith and dedication, God will bless the work. And I enjoy talking about that particular point. And I don't want to skip over it, but there is another matter that I'd like to emphasize tonight as I think about and I talk about this great congregation of the New Testament and what I can learn from them. This congregation was a mission-minded church. And they down at Jerusalem what they should do. They didn't try to convert everyone in the city of Antioch. They did what they could in the city of Antioch, and then they decided, we're going to send men on out there. The Spirit has told us to send men on out to regions beyond, and they did that very thing. They sent Barnabas and Saul, which must have um, been an eventful meeting. 
I'm reading now in Acts chapter 13, and I'm, I'm looking at um, these particular matters, and I'm considering and thinking about the mission-minded attitude that Antioch had. And I'm in verse 2. <clears throat> While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And here's the meeting that I had in mind. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It must have been quite a meeting. To say that they laid their hands on them is to say that they endorsed them. They were in fellowship with them. They were standing behind them financially. They were standing by them spiritually. And it made the work of Barnabas and Saul much easier to take and easier to handle. But I'll tell you one thing about Barnabas and Saul. They never offered any excuses in preaching the gospel. I'll tell you one thing. The Apostle Paul lifted his bloody body up at Lystra, and he kept going forward into the next city. You see, he had been stoned and left for dead for the preaching of the gospel. But they didn't offer excuses, and they didn't stop. They kept going forward with the gospel message. More people need to hear. More churches need to be established. These people back home at Antioch have sent us out. God sent us. You see, they were mission-minded. They wanted to teach others. They didn't go down to Jerusalem to see what they should do or not. They realized that they should obey the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. I want to turn to Matthew's account of that in Matthew chapter 28. And then I want to explain a little bit about that, and then I want to tell you about a conversation I had with another preacher. In Matthew chapter 28, he tells us all authority. In verse 18, In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the, of the age. As I read through that, I lost track as to how many times he used the word all. All or always or every one or words conveying that idea. Go to the gospel to every living creature. I, had a, I read an article by a preacher. And I have to say I objected to the article. And so he tried... Great Commission did not apply to us today. That the Great Commission just applied to them, the apostles. It doesn't apply to us. And I thought, I never heard of that idea before. I better call that fellow and we better have a Bible study on that matter. And I did. And I called him and he tried to argue that they had the miraculous in that day and time. We don't have the miraculous today. I said, well, on that part, we agree. He said, well, because they had the miraculous in that day and time, they could preach the gospel to every living creature. But we don't have the miraculous today, therefore we can't preach the gospel to every living creature. And therefore, we in turn are really not bound by the Great Commission. I said, I believe you see it all wrong. I can't agree with that at all. If you take that out, you take the heart out of the church of the Lord. If you take that out in the century, not to the present day, you take the heart of the church right out of its very chest. If we don't have that responsibility of preaching the gospel to the lost, then why are we here? What is the purpose of it? And further, 
You're trying to say God's more powerful with the miraculous age than He is with the written Word? You're trying to tell me that God is more powerful with the miraculous and He's less powerful today, that there's not enough power in that Word of God to convert the world, that we need to go out and do our very best to teach every single person in the world the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not going to buy that. God is still just as powerful today as He was then. But now He teaches man, every man, woman, boy, and girl through the written Word of God. And that written Word of God is just as powerful, just as cogent, just as applicable today as it was the first day that it was given. Didn't get anywhere. I'm sorry about that. But Antioch was a great success because they were mission-minded and will be a great success if we are mission-minded and teach others the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is called the Great Commission for a reason. It is our Great Commission. The marching orders that Jesus has given us as His church to go throughout the world and preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never give up on our responsibility, become derelict in our duty to fail to preach and teach the gospel message to a lost world. The greatest message the world's ever seen, ever will hear the gospel message of Jesus. I wish I could end the lesson on that note right there, but I can't because we've got another problem that arises. It doesn't take but a few decades and Antioch is in a mess. It's in a mess. The world begins to get in. Ignatius was one of the leaders of the church at Antioch in the second century. And we learn a great deal of Antioch and how it came to be during his lifetime. But give it a couple of decades. And then you're going to see by 380 A.D. John Christendom, who was a powerful church leader of his day. The population of Antioch reaches now some 200,000 people. Talks about the decadence of the city, but he also talks about how the compromising attitude of the members of the church, the body of Christ, became. And when I did this in my research and read these matters in my research, I copied this statement down. I thought I'd read it for you so that we become more, uh, more pointed. So great times, Christendom says, that if a stranger were to compare the precepts of the gospel with the actual practices of society, he would infer that men were not the disciples, but the enemies of Christ. So compromising become that they're no longer the great congregation filled with zeal and evangelism, liberal in their giving with regard to the needy, benevolent in their heart, mission-minded in preaching and teaching the gospel to the world that now they've compromised with the world and they became like the world. And now Antioch becomes more like the world than it is the church that Jesus died for and was established. That can happen. How can that happen? That can happen fail to see the power of the teaching of the Word of God. And they don't apply it to their lives. That can happen when they lose that tender heart for those who are in need. When they fail to realize that they're working with God and that God is using them in a wonderful and a powerful way to preach and teach the gospel to the lost and how that they want to be hoarders of the message and keep it inside the walls and in turn not get out 
and preach the gospel to regions beyond. That's what can happen if we allow it to happen. It doesn't have to be that way, but it happened at the church at Antioch. Apostasy would arise. There were ten church councils that took place at Antioch. Ten of them. And I would like to talk about those sometime, but we'll not do that tonight. The church councils, sometimes called the ecumenical councils of the churches. And you can see the drifting that takes place as you study the church councils over the generations that come. This begins to creep in and that begins to creep in. And slowly but surely changes begin to affect the thinking and the minds of people that no longer are they focused on the inspired word of God and living by it. But now they begin to embrace and accept the things that are popular of the day. We cannot allow that to happen. We must continue to focus our heart and mind on God's Word and encourage others to do the same. May we so focus ourselves that we be like Antioch, a congregation who believes in God's Word and teaches that Word to others without fear, without favor, without compromise. And that's our message tonight. Our message tonight is for you to obey the same gospel that these first century Christians obeyed. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's who they were. They were just Christians. They didn't have some denominational name modifying the word Christian. They were just Christians and they were satisfied at being Christians. Followers of Christ and members of the body of Jesus Christ. The church at Antioch. Let us be more like them in the ways that they emulated Christ, and let us reject their failures when they fell away from the example of Christ. You never obeyed the gospel of Christ? Do it tonight. Become a New Testament Christian by repenting of your sins and being baptized into Christ, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ. You've been unfaithful to the gospel? Repent of that matter tonight, Luke 13, 3, and become a faithful New Testament Christian. And I urge you to do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.